There's my signal. He can push record. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are prepared now to wrap up the first major portion of our Harmony of the Gospel section, this portion that is titled The Birth, Infancy, and Adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist. And uh, this will be concluded with sections 15, 16, and 17 in the uh, Harmony of the Gospels. The childhood of Jesus, which is really just a couple of verses. Uh, The 12-year-old Jesus visiting the temple, which is the majority of this paragraph, verses 41 through 50. And then a summary of Jesus' growth to adulthood in verses 51 and 52. Then uh, we will proceed from here into the next section, Truths About John the Baptist, which really encompasses the Gospel of John, John chapters 1 through 4. There's not a tremendous amount. There will be a little bit uh, from the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke is what we call the Synoptic Gospels uh, as it relates to the baptism event itself. Uh, but other than the baptism at the River Jordan, I think most of this section in uh, these 12 different portions all will come within the first four chapters of the Gospel of John. Then we will return to the Galilean ministry of Jesus, which is ultimately the largest single portion in the entire life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And uh, for that portion, we will virtually ignore John. <laughs> we will focus mainly on Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, just part of the Holy Spirit's distinctions when he breaks down the different Gospels and their purpose for uh, for writing. So, in any event, if you do not have one of these harmonies, we encourage you to get one and uh, follow along. We have published these a number of times just independently. We've also published them and released them in the uh, Life of Christ study. They were also a part of the Through the Bible Notebook as one of the references in the back of the Through the Bible Notebook. So you've probably received this a number of different times. All right, Luke chapter 2. As we examine the childhood of Jesus, his visit to the temple at the age of 12, and then the summary of his growth to adulthood, we're focusing in on verses 40 through 52, the last part of Luke chapter 2. Before we do any of this, though, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together and to receive instruction. We thank you, Father, for the freedom that we enjoy in this nation to meet together in a public building with a sign out front, with an ad in the newspaper. Father, we're not meeting in secret. We're not afraid of the government shutting us down or hauling us away to jail. We do thank you for such freedoms. We ask that we might enjoy this freedom for some time to come. And we thank you for this day now. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, Luke chapter 2 and verse 40. We have been uh, previously dealing with the escape to Egypt and the return back from Egypt, an event that is not recorded in the Gospel of Luke. So uh, we've been dealing mainly with Matthew here in recent weeks uh, and following up with the um, presentation of Christ in the temple and the introduction with, uh, with uh, Simeon and Anna here in the temple. 
We then notice in verse 39, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. So in between verses 38 and 39, we recognize we have the uh, visit of the Magi, the escape into Egypt, the return back to Israel, and then the relocation to Nazareth. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Then we get into the visit to Jerusalem with verse 41 and following. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Now there's some things we want to focus on here because part of our thinking really struggles with verse 40 and and even the concept of Jesus Christ growing. Even the concept of God the Son growing See, why is it that he's growing? I can understand growing because he's a baby in the manger and he's got to grow through his toddler years and childhood and into adulthood and so forth. We can we can fathom that because we can't fathom a, a baby in a manger traveling through Galilee and gathering disciples and teaching the word of God and going to the cross. Obviously, he has to grow to adulthood. Obviously, it's an adult man that gathers disciples, teaches the word of God, goes to the cross, and so forth. But the idea of growing in wisdom, increasing in wisdom, really is a struggle when believers stop and think about it because they want to say, rightfully so, that God the Son is omniscient and that so Jesus Christ is omniscient and so he's always omniscient, always been omniscient. Why does he need to grow? Okay, Why does he need to go to Bible class? Why does he need to sit and listen to teachers in the temple, which we're going to see here in this chapter? So let's take a little bit of time, and if we have to, this might be a little tough. If you're a, you know, there's abstract people and concrete people in this world, all right? And I've learned to love the abstract people because I'm not one. <laughs> I'm a concrete kind of guy. I want my facts. I want to know them, and then I'm, I'm fine with that. You know, I can accept that's the way it is, and I don't necessarily need reasons behind it. If I can put a handle on that's the way it is, I can proceed forward on a concrete basis and say I'm fine with that. But then others are thinkers and more abstract and more philosophical and you have that wonderful why. Well, why is it the way that it is? See, you're not willing just to hang on to it because. So we'll try to get a little philosophical, a little uh, uh, abstract in our thinking to give some broad concepts here this morning. And we will do so in our point one. And we can turn over to Philippians 2 in a moment, but get the point down first. Having emptied himself, that's Philippians 2.7, having emptied himself, the mortal humanity of Jesus required growth. Having emptied himself, the mortal humanity of Jesus required growth. And you can join me in Philippians chapter 2, but we will see there's two verses here that refer to growth in Luke chapter 2. Verse 40 and verse 52. We've already read verse 40. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. We will break that down here shortly. But it is a passage of growth that pertains to the mortal humanity of Jesus Christ. Likewise, at the end of the chapter, verse 52, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Another passage that refers to growth in temporal life, bios life as well as his spiritual life, because God is mentioned and men, and men are mentioned there in verse 52. 
But I think the key to understanding this is to understand what happened when God the Son entered into the womb of a virgin. When God the Son entered into the womb of a virgin, what exactly happened there at that point of time? So, turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Remarkable chapter for a lot of different reasons. But in the principle of kenosis, from the kenao emptying of himself. Philippians 2 is an application passage directed towards church age believers that we will follow after the example that Jesus Christ set. And that we will, for instance, in verse 2, be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, intent on one, in, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Okay? This is a kind of unity among believers in a local church that should be ideally in any local church. And if it's not, then we recognize there's things that need to be dealt with. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That would be the antithesis of Jesus Christ's example. We are supposed to be imitators of Christ. Christ didn't do anything from selfishness, neither should we, or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Alright? Christ was the example of this. With humility of mind, he regarded everybody else on planet Earth more important than himself, and he went to the cross on behalf of everybody else in the cosmos. The one person in the history of mankind that didn't need to go to the cross... Because the wages of sin is death. We all should have been there. Every one of us should have been crucified or could have been crucified. But the one person who was qualified not to be on the cross went to the cross so that we might have eternal life. So with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And you can take this verse, you can plug this into any context. For a local assembly, if, if believers are, are considering the other as more important than themselves, you can have that harmony that's mentioned in verse 3. In a marriage... If the husband regards the wife's needs as more important than his needs, and if the wife regards her husband's needs as more important than her needs, in other words, if both parties are applying this towards each other, you've got the win-win scenario, the win-win circumstance with both parties involved functioning under principles here of humility. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others, it says in verse 4. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So it's a mental attitude. He modeled it for us. He illustrated it. He set the example. We should be an imitator of it. And uh, because he has shown us what the principle is. Verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now this speaks back to before the incarnation. This speaks back to before the, the, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. We're looking back to eternity past. God the Son is God. All right? God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. All right? And He is God in being, obviously in His essence, in His attributes, He is God. But also in form. Existed in the form of God. Keeping in mind that God is spirit. If you want to think of his form, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in form from all eternity past, have been have not had physical bodies. Okay? Until the incarnation. God the Son is about to enter into a physical body when the virgin conceives. Alright? And so a form will be assumed. 
by God. But prior to that form, he existed in the form of God. That is, he was, he is God. Invisible. All right. Unable to be seen. So, no, obviously, I want to make one other statement. Throughout the, throughout the Old Testament, he would be visibly manifest in a variety of fashions. Burning bush, uh, still small voice, uh, cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, um, angel of the Lord. He had a number of visible Christophanies, but he had not assumed in his nature a physical form until the manger. All right. Now, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, which is interesting because that right there addresses the fall of Satan who said, I shall be like the Most High God. The one who in pride and selfishness and arrogance, who, who did everything from selfishness and empty conceit, all right, uh, determined and declared, I will be like the Most High God, felt that he could attain to deity status. The creature could become somehow a, an uncreature, a non-creature, a creator himself. God himself. And so what this passage is, is contrasting is that our adversary thought he could become God. Whereas God humbled himself and became man. Okay? Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant. Now, emptied himself. I'm going to break this down here. This, this phrase, emptied himself, is quite... Remarkable. The New American Standard in the margin has laid aside his privileges. And I really, really appreciate the imagery of that um, expanded understanding of kanao, the Greek kanao or the, Greek, or the noun kenosis, that he laid aside his privileges. I'm going to break this down for you here in a moment. Taking the form of a bondservant. Now, see, it's the external form that gives us the understanding of what emptying himself is all about. Because he can't stop being God. He's immutable. Alright? So he can't stop being God and he can't be any less than God. But by emptying himself, he is laying aside his privileges. And I hope we can make that clear. And it's stressing the form that he's taking. The form of a bondservant. Being made in the likeness of men. Now remember, who, who were men made in the likeness of? Adam was made in the likeness of God. Right. So now here is Christ being made in the likeness of men who's made in the, li- in the image and likeness of God. All right. But it's once again restored back to sinless humanity like Adam was. Adam and Eve were the only ones perfectly bearing the image of God because after they fell, every child born in Adam was then in Adam bearing a fallen likeness. But Jesus Christ gets to bear that true likeness. See, as the second Adam or the last Adam. Let me break this down here with some subpoints, And I think if we go through step by step and are thinking, that it's going to help us quite a bit. Subpoint A, the kenosis of Jesus Christ. The kenosis of Jesus Christ. And I left it in the Greek. I want you to get a handle on the Greek term. The kenosis of Jesus Christ means that he voluntarily laid aside his privileges. Kenosis. K-E-N-O-S-I-S. Or if you want to spell it out in the Greek, Kappa, Epsilon, Nu, Omega, Sigma, Iota, Sigma. Kenosis. The accent's on the first syllable, so it's actually kenosis. I usually mispronounce it when I say kenosis. It's kenosis. K-E-N-O-S-I-S. Kappa, Epsilon, Nu, Omega, Sigma, Iota, Sigma. The kenosis. 
or the kenosis of Jesus Christ, means that he voluntarily laid aside his privileges. He emptied himself. All right. But now what does this mean? <laughs> what does this mean? I'll spell it out for you. In additional, in additional ways. It's kind of neat to look at Philippians 1.7 and every single Bible you can get your hands on because they've handled it in different ways, but every Bible translator has handled it very specifically knowing that this is a very special passage. Subpoint one. God the Son's immutability does not allow him to stop being omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, etc. So when he empties himself, that doesn't mean that he stops being God. Because any God who could stop being God isn't God. <laughs> if God could change, he wouldn't be God. He is unchangeable. So God the Son's immutability does not allow him to stop being omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, etc. You can fill in the entire essence box there and go beyond the essence box because there's elements and attributes of God that, are, that never have been in any essence box I've ever seen. And yet, there they describe God's nature. Okay? So keep in mind, immutability means he can't stop being God. He can't stop being omniscient or being omnipotent or being omnipresent because he's God. However, are you still writing? Are you with me now? Point two, God the Son's sovereignty allows him to stop exercising his divine power. God the Son's sovereignty allows him to stop exercising his divine power. See, under immutability, he can't stop being God. But in sovereignty, he chooses, volitionally chooses, to stop exercising those omni-attributes, the divine attributes. Say. God the Son's sovereignty allows him to stop exercising his divine power. So he still is omniscience. But he chooses to not exercise omniscience. You see the difference? Maybe I should make the one statement a noun and the other statement an adjective. He still is omniscient. But he chooses not to exercise omniscience. Jesus Christ is still omnipotent, but he chooses not to exercise omnipotence. Jesus Christ is still omnipresent, but he chooses not to exercise omnipresence. See, he still has to walk from point A to point B, even though he's omnipresent. But because he's choosing not to exercise omnipresence, I'm going to spell this out item by item here under B, C, D, and E. I'm sorry, B, C, and D. But just get a handle on this. He doesn't stop his nature because that's unchangeable. But he chooses to not exercise the divine power. That's laying aside privileges, choosing not to operate as God. He's choosing to operate as man. And he has to in order to be our substitute, in order to identify with us. 
Because if he comes as God and, and serves as God and functions as God, then he's not identifying with us. He would not be understanding our weaknesses. He would not become truly our intercessor, knowing our position. See? And taking our place on the cross. If he functions as God rather than man, then is he truly facing the temptations you and I face? No, he's not. He must face our temptations the way we face our temptations, and that is in the limitations of humanity. And this is, these are limitations he chooses to accept when God the Son chooses to obey the Father's plan to operate in true humanity. So I hope, so I know this is abstract thinking in a lot of ways, and I hope we can understand this, because this pertains not only here, but this pertains to the hypostatic union at large. God-man, undiminished deity with true humanity, united together in one person forever. All right? And I hope we can get a handle on that. So, sub-point B now. We saw under sub-point A that the kenosis of Jesus Christ means that he voluntarily laid aside his privileges. Now I'm going to spell it out for you item by item. Point B. By not exercising omnipresence, God the Son required his activity within space and time to be limited to a mortal human body's operation within space and time. It's kind of wordy, but I want you to get it down. By not exercising omnipresence, God the Son required his activity within space and time. And that's what's happening here. God is outside of space and time, but for the incarnation, he limited himself as he injected himself into that body. He limited himself to operating within boundaries that he would not otherwise have to be limited by. By not exercising omnipresence, God the Son required his activity within space and time to be limited to a mortal human body's operation within space and time. And this has to do with where we are physically, what I can see physically, what I can hear physically, who I can interact with physically. I'm limited as a finite creature. A human being, a mortal human being is finite. We are limited in space and time. You probably noticed that. <laughs> All right. If I'm if I'm here, I can't be somewhere else. You notice that we're limited to one place at one time because we're not omnipresent. And I'm limited within human limitations of what I can see. What's within sight of where I am? What's within hearing of where I am? Okay. Sometimes moms can hear things, <laughs> hear the little babies crying, all right? But still, that's limited based on where you are. The further away, well, now you can't hear that anymore. See, now I'm for one, I'm very thankful that God is omnipresent and that he can hear my prayers at the same time he hears my parents' prayers in Washington State, at the same time he hears our soldiers' prayers over in Iraq and Afghanistan, at the same time, you know, omnipresence is a great thing. Because he can see every test of what's going on. And he can hear every prayer request as it's given, as it's offered up. See, it's a beautiful aspect of omnipresence. But he's not exercised in his humanity now, in his 
by entering into the, the, the babe in the womb, he is limiting his choosing not to exercise his omnipresence. Now, God the Son is still omnipresent, but he's choosing to limit his operation. And that includes not only what he does, but what he sees, what he hears. All right? Who he speaks to, what he does. God the Son requires his activity within space and time to be limited to a human, a mortal human's body operation within space and time. And within time, likewise. What are we doing in time? We're proceeding forward through time, aren't we? Through the time dimension. We're proceeding forward one day at a time. We're proceeding through time one day at a time. See, we can't speed it up. Can't slow it down. <laughs> It'd be kind of nice if I could slow the time dimension and maybe get 25 hours, 30 hours, 48 hours into a day. But we can't. We're proceeding through time 24 hours a day. And we can't go back and change something we, we might want to. Might have a whole list of regrets. If I could go back and change A, B, C, you know, I'd go back and change D, E, and F, and whatever. Can't do that. We're proceeding through time on that 24-hour-per-day scale, and Jesus Christ limited himself to that. Again, that's part of the kenosis. Part of choosing not to exercise omnipresence. Because otherwise, God is outside of space and time. He's not limited to the, the time frames that we are. Or the spatial limitations that we are, all right? Point C, by not exercising omniscience, God the Son required the mortal humanity of Jesus' mind, his brain, his mind had to learn. His mind had to learn. Because God the Son sovereignly chose to not exercise his omniscience. By not exercising omniscience, God the Son required the mortal humanity of Jesus' mind to learn. His mind had to learn. By not exercising omniscience, God the Son required the mortal humanity of Jesus' mind to learn. He had to learn. He's a little baby. In the manger. And he's gurgling and goo-gooing and spoiling diapers and doing all this stuff and breastfeeding and growing up and everything else. And he's listening to his parents speak and he's learning Hebrew or he's learning Aramaic or he's learning Greek or all three. Alright? He's learning. And he learns as he grows. That's what's being emphasized in Luke chapter 2. See? Because he's not exercising his omniscience. Otherwise, you know, the babe in the manger could be speaking to Joseph and Mary in any number of languages. And <laughs> all right? But that's not happening. Because the child is growing. And he needs to grow. Point D. By not exercising omnipotence, God the Son required the mortal humanity of Jesus' body to grow. He's going to grow in his mind. He's going to grow in his body. By not exercising omnipotence, God the Son required the mortal humanity of Jesus' body to grow. You know, he had to have been born of a virgin in order to have been truly humanity. So he's born of a virgin, he's human, he's got a human body. But 
once he was born, you know, he could have exercised omnipotence and transformed his body into an adult male. He could have sped up the clock and, and zipped 30 years by in, in an instant. You know, like you do with a videotape or DVD, push fast forward, <laughs> skip to the next chapter, and, and go from an infant to a 30-year-old like that. And it wasn't the plan of God. He needed to grow. He needed to face the tests of a one-year-old, a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a ten-year-old, all the way up. He needed to face the tests of an adolescent. He needed to face the tests of an adult male, all the way up. Step by step by step by step. He needed to uh, face the death of his father, his adopted father, Joseph. See, he needed to take on that responsibility with his widowed mother and with his uh, brothers and sisters. The leadership that he had in the family at that point of time. His mortal humanity was required to grow. So, if we're following along in this, in this thinking, <laughs> kenosis means that he laid aside privileges. He stopped exercising what otherwise he had the right to exercise. It's kind of like what we do under the law of love. We have the right to a particular liberty, but we choose not to exercise that liberty we choose to forsake it for the sake of of love for the sake of benefiting somebody else or not being a stumbling block jesus christ could exercise deity but chose not to for the sake of redeeming fallen humanity we're returning now to luke chapter 2 Our main point one, once again, having emptied himself, the mortal humanity of Jesus required growth. I would say, secondly, under main point two, God the Father bestowed a particular grace upon the mortal humanity of Jesus Christ during his childhood. God the Father bestowed a particular grace upon the mortal humanity of Jesus Christ during his childhood. That's Luke 2 and verse 40. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. The grace of God was upon him. God the Father bestowed a particular grace upon the mortal humanity of Jesus Christ during his childhood. Now, every child has a particular grace placed upon them prior to the age of accountability we often think of it as. We understand that a young infant, a young child, if they've not had the opportunity to place their faith in Christ to become saved and they die, that they are ushered into the presence of the Lord. We've taught that a number of times and I think it's indisputable when you examine the Scriptures. Now, Jesus Christ... (laughs) You ever think about this? Jesus Christ never got saved. Because he never got lost. (laughs) All right? He was never born in Adam. He never had to place his faith in himself, you know, to be saved. Like we had to place our faith in Christ to become saved. And those before the cross had to place their faith in a coming Christ to be saved. Of course, we are after the cross. We place our faith in the Christ who came to be saved. But Jesus Christ was never lost. 
was never fallen, required no salvation event. He was born saved, shall we say. And in many respects, unlike Adam, who was created saved, we say, or maybe unfallen is a better term than saved, but Adam and Eve were created unfallen. They were created righteous. They were created acceptable in God's sight. But they were created as adults, unfallen adults. They, they didn't have to grow up from babyhood to adulthood, see. But Jesus Christ had to, from baby to toddler to child to teenager, see. And an aspect of the Father's grace being upon him, I find to be extraordinary, to be significant. The grace of God that that preserved his spotless and blameless, uh, without blemish um, condition. See, I mean, how easy is it for a toddler to get angry? <laughs> how easy is it for a, a little infant, to, a little child, see, to commit sin? Well, we don't necessarily have a way to maybe picture that in our thinking because every toddler you've ever seen in your entire life had a sin nature. <laughs> so we see toddlers get angry. We see children committing sins. And we teach our children about sin and how to confess. If they're born-again believers, they can start confessing and get back in fellowship. And they should learn that very early. But now Jesus Christ never has to learn the confession procedure because he never sins. And yet the grace that's extended here, I believe, the grace that's extended here in his childhood, in his infancy, in his childhood, is similar to that grace that precedes the age of accountability that watches over this child as he grows until he gains this particular capacity to reject evil and to choose good. Okay? So, and this comes very early. So, if you will, at this time, go with me back to Isaiah chapter 7. And I think prophetically we get a glimmer of this. Verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey. At the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. Now, keep in mind, he is born saved. He is born righteous, sinless and perfect and righteous. And so as he as his mind grows into the mind of a toddler, into the mind of a child, while he's still quite young, his mind has the capacity for volitional choices. He will eat curds and honey. This is this is. Food for young children. And at that time, he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. Okay? There's indications here with respect to his growth as a young child. I very much believe that a young child can place their faith in Christ. I think sometimes adults don't give their children enough credit. To say, well, he's not old enough to understand. <laughs> really. Jesus Christ had quite a few words for some prideful uh, Pharisees and prideful disciples and others that tried to hinder children from coming to him. And he said, don't hinder them from coming to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. He even told him, he said, you know, your faith is a little bit misguided here. You need to humble yourself and have the faith of a child. 
So if Jesus Christ accepts the faith of a child, (laughs) that simple placement of trust, in any event, I think sometimes we're too um, restrictive in uh, these particular areas. So when we see grace that's manifest in Luke chapter 2, the grace of God that was upon him, I think we uh, can rejoice over the fact that the Father preserved his son sinless to the point where he can become volitionally accountable. And he became volitionally accountable at a very young age, and he kept himself sinless from that point forward to the point of the cross. Because he was tempted in all things, even as we are, and yet without sin, he volitionally chose to reject evil and to serve good and to obey his Father. I believe from a very young age. The standpoint where he's still eating the curds and the honey. All right. The translation by Kenneth Wiest I really appreciated in uh, Kenneth Weiss' expanded New Testament translation. And the little child kept on growing and kept on increasing in strength, being constantly suffused with wisdom. Being constantly suffused with wisdom. The um, verb that's translated there, increasing in wisdom, is passive. In other words, it's being done to him. He is receiving the wisdom that is being imparted. By his parents' teaching. And the little child, and it is a little child there in verse uh, 40. It's a little bit older child in verse, um, it's the boy Jesus in verse 43. But he's a little child in verse 40. He's a boy in verse 43. And Mary calls him son in verse 48. It's kind of interesting to look at the different terms that are employed. Little child, boy, and son as they appear in this one paragraph, in this one passage. And the little child kept on going and kept on increasing in strength, being constantly suffused with wisdom. You know why it's so important that we train up a child in the way he should go? That we bring up a child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Because we are infusing that child with wisdom. We are laying that foundation. We are, we are instilling those patterns and that, the content of that doctrine while they're young in this foundational stage. We're uh, doing them a huge favor for down the road. <laughs> down the road when they're older and maybe they're not as receptive to a parent's influence, to teaching. Let's see, if they've received it already, then it's implanted. Receiving the Word of God implanted, which is able to save the soul. Receiving that word implanted. What a favor parents are doing when they're grounding their children in the truth. Because the day is coming when, you know, the parents can't follow every child around all the time, you know. I mean, just oftentimes we just share numbers. (laughs) You know, Sharon and I, can we follow all four children everywhere they go? Especially once they hit teenage years and driver's license and all the rest of that starts happening. Okay. Then they leave the home and uh, then they're accountable, see. Can't follow them around, but I can put the Word of God in their soul. And they're going to take that with them. <laughs> See? Wherever they go, their soul's going with them. And the Word of God we put in there is going with them. I appreciate the translation here. We'll have another one coming up as well by Kenneth Wiest. Point three. Joseph and Mary faithfully raised their family under the requirements of the Mosaic Law. 
Joseph and Mary faithfully raised their family into the requirements of the Mosaic Law, observing the uh, pilgrim feasts. The one in view in this passage is Passover. But Israel was expected to observe three pilgrim feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Joseph and Mary faithfully raised their family under the requirements of the Mosaic Law. Luke chapter 2, verses 41 and following. It says, when they had performed everything, that's verse 39, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. We see it again in verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. They never missed one. Because they were expected to be there every year. We saw this with the care they took to bring the dedication offering. The care that they took to have their son circumcised. The care that they have observed every step of the way to observe the requirements of the law that they were under. Now, we want parents today to do the same thing. Of course, we're not under law anymore. We're under grace. Nevertheless, we want parents today to do the same thing, to train up their children in a godly manner. But I hope that we recognize that in the church age, what we're dealing with is the reality of our worship of of God and His Son through worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. It's not just simply external religion. It's not just, well, I took my kid to church. (laughs) I took him to church. We went to Sunday school. See? As if you're doing time. (laughs) You know? Doing your duty. Want to bring him up with religion. See, in some cases, you know, there's churches that have uh, uh, kind of a, a graduation mark. You know, they've got a confirmation process or whatever. And if as soon as that child gets confirmed, you get them baptized, you get them confirmed. Sometimes parents think, hey, I'm off the hook now. I did my part. I brought this kid up in the church, got him baptized or sprinkled when they were a little baby, got him confirmed when they were 12 or 14, whatever the denomination does. Okay, Talking about uh, Presbyterians and Catholics and Lutherans and other things like that. And uh, get their child through the confirmation process and, hey, they've done their job. Well, no. <laughs> are, are, we, are we just pursuing an external religion? What are we doing? Are you grounding your child in the truth of the Word of God? But Joseph and Mary were faithful parents, and we see their faithfulness here. And it's manifest year after year after year after year for the 11 years prior to this one, for this one when Jesus is 12, and for the years following. So far as we're not told otherwise, we understand this to be the pattern, this to be the the principle of what's communicated. Verse 41 says, His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. This was their custom. This was their practice. They were devout in their faith. But now this particular one, some point A, this particular Passover pilgrimage, (laughs) went wild with my peace, this particular Passover pilgrimage was unique among all the annual pilgrimages that their family ever took. It was unique compared to all the ones that preceded it, and it was unique compared to all the ones that followed. It was unique because this is the one that's recorded in Scripture. (laughs) This is the one that the Holy Spirit chose to relate to us. We don't get the family photos and the vacation stories and the you know from the first eleven Passovers. We get this one when he's twelve. We don't get any of the other ones either, from when he was thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, all the way up to when he was twenty nine. 
or 30. And we don't know precisely how old he was when he came to be baptized by the Apostle John. It says that he was approximately 30 or at least 30 years of age, may have been up to 33, 34 years of age at that point of time. The only the expression about or at least means that he was in his 30s. Could have theoretically even been 39. And that verse could have still been written that Jesus Christ appeared to him being about at least 30 years of age. All right. Remember, he was born in at least 4 B.C., maybe 5 B.C., maybe 6 B.C., because Herod dies in 4 B.C. All right. Other things of chronology we'll deal with as we get there. Probably we'll focus on it mainly when we get to the uh, Passion Week, we get to the crucifixion itself. But this one was unique. This one was unique. So point B, this Passover would be the last time Jesus of Nazareth would attend as a child. This Passover would be the last time Jesus of Nazareth would attend as a child. He is a boy. It says in verse 43, the boy Jesus. As they were returning after spending a full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. This is the final Passover he will spend as a child. The next year he will be 13 years old. He will be a man. In Jewish reckoning and understanding. The Jewish boy was recognized as entering manhood at 13 years of age. The Jewish boy was recognized as entering manhood at 13 years of age. <laughs> Bob slipped out on me already. He was, got the tape going and went back to finish his schoolwork. So next July 1st, I guess, he hits 13. And in the Jewish society, he was considered a man. Eligible to sign contracts. Eligible to enter into business arrangements. Expected to be working. Expected to take a wife, raise a family. <laughs> wow. You see why we have to study so hard? Because our culture is quite a bit different. I wouldn't dream of Bob getting married next year. All right? Even if I have my eye on some of the daughters around here. For <laughs> All right? But I would never dream of that happening. That's not our society. That's not our culture. And yet perhaps there's things we should learn from their culture and recognizing that especially believers at those ages can take on more responsibility maybe than we're willing to give them. More responsibility, exercising their priesthood, participating in the, uh, in the adult assembly, for example. Almost out of time. I could really spend some philosophical moments dealing with uh, advantages of 13-year-olds getting married, for example, and other things. But I'll let that go for today. At that time, when he turns 13, at that time he became a son of the law. That was the title for a, a boy that crossed over from a boy to a man. And his, what we call today, the bar mitzvah uh, ritual and all that that's in modern Judaism. 
At that time he became a son of the law and was qualified to constitute, well, to, it's not worded very well, qualified to constitute a synagogue, qualified to be one of ten men that would join together and constitute a synagogue. A synagogue was any location where you had ten men who desired to study the law. And if ten men contracted together to form a synagogue, they would then have either acquire or hire or have a rabbi or one of the ten would be a rabbi. They could constitute a synagogue with a minimum of ten men. And at thirteen, that boy was a man and he, he was eligible to help constitute one of the ten men required to constitute a synagogue. Now some, some community, uh, communities were too small. There were some communities that were, were, were very small, didn't have much of a Jewish presence at all. I'm talking about in the, in the expanded Roman world, for example. Uh, it may be that a, a particular location didn't have a synagogue. Paul would go to locations, and if they had a synagogue, he'd go and he'd speak in the synagogue. If they didn't have a synagogue, he found where there were believers. In Philippi, for example, he found believers that were down by the river. And he went and he found some believers down there having a prayer time and what have you. But if the community supported a synagogue, then he would go and speak in the synagogue. It took ten men to constitute a synagogue. I do recommend Ralph Gower's work, The New Manners and Customs of Bible Times. It really helps to understand some of the culture uh, of that time, especially since we're so alien to it in our own day. Point four. The unusual event on this occasion actually occurred at the conclusion of the Passover week. The unusual event on this occasion actually occurred at the conclusion of the Passover week. There was nothing unusual about the Passover itself. Nothing unusual about the Feast of Unleavened Bread that follows the Passover for seven days. Everything proceeded as it had proceeded for the last 11 times that Joseph and Mary had come here with the child Jesus. And by this time, quite likely, James and Jude and, and some of the other children were born by this point as well. We don't know how much older Jesus was, older than James, older than Jude, older than Simon, older than, uh, who's the fourth one? There's four sons that are named and two sisters that are, that are not named, but we know there's at least two sisters. So quite likely by the time now Jesus is 12, it's likely that his little brother, you know, James, Jimmy's running around somewhere, right? Jude's running around somewhere in the caravan with a family. Uh, Simeon, this is driving me crazy. Who's the fourth brother? Joseph, right? Isn't it Joseph? All right. I'll look it up after class. But there's four brothers that are named and then two sisters, at least two, could be more than two. They're just left unnamed when uh, family members and others in Nazareth refer to his sisters, they refer to sisters in plural. Everything proceeded normally. They traveled there in the caravan. They observed the Passover together. They ate the meal together. They observed the following week of unleavened bread together. Everything was as it had been in all previous years. They load up their things. They start heading back. And this is where something different happens. <laughs> because Jesus isn't going with them when they're making the return trip back to Nazareth. It says in verse 12, When he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. 
but his parents were unaware of it. But supposing him to be in the caravan, he went a day's, they went a, a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. All right, now keep in mind they've had, <laughs> they've got other children too they're keeping track of here. <laughs> All right, he is 12. They've made this trip many times. They trust their oldest son because he's always been very responsible. He's never disobeyed, right? You're all, is everybody, yeah, everybody in this room, no, except for Terry. We're all parents here, okay? <laughs> Here's a child that's never disobeyed because he's never sinned. He's been very trustworthy. Very responsible. He's helped his father in the carpentry business. He's been very helpful in everything that they do, in every observance. And he's a brilliant student in, in learning the Bible uh, lessons that Joseph and Mary are teaching. And so when they're loading up in the caravan, they're loading up with not only their family, but also their cousins, as it says here, relatives and acquaintances. The whole group from Nazareth is returning back to Nazareth together. They're not really worried about where he might be. Not until after the first day out, and they say, you know, I haven't seen him. <laughs> where is he? So it was after the day out that they began looking for him and didn't find him, and they returned. Uh, and so by the time a day out and a day looking for him and a day to get back, it's been three days, which we see in verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple. All right, they found him in the temple. This is, uh, and we'll get back to this. I'm kind of at the end of the time here. I promised I'd take you four minutes over since, <laughs> but we're at a good stopping point, so I'm not worried about that. Um, but we look at this, and, and as parents, we say, wait a minute. <laughs> if my kid ever does this, he's getting spanked. You know? We're driving across country somewhere and all of a sudden he's not in the minivan. And I got to look all around for him and I got to go back and find him. Well, in my book now, that's disobedience. In my book, that's wrong. And yet this is not sin because Jesus Christ did not sin. He never sinned. But he had an understanding of the will of God. And he actually had a more of an understanding of the will of God than even his parents had. Because they didn't understand it. He did, they didn't. And um, it, it's remarkable. We're going we're gonna to really, I hope, emphasize this next week. Because some of it could be a maturity issue, but some of it is, is simply a perspective issue. There will be times when believers will, will truly have a difference of opinion on the will of God. And it might be a husband sees it one way and a wife sees it another way. It might be a pastor sees it one way and the deacons see it another way. <laughs> All right? It might be just two believers and they're seeing it different ways. The pastor sees one thing and the, the flock is seeing something else. Okay? And we have a different view on the will of God. Now, does that mean that one is right and one is wrong? That one has to be right and one has to be wrong? Why are we so quick to jump on somebody and say, well, you're wrong? 
because I think this. <laughs> right? Or is it from our perspective, from our viewpoints, you know, it's like that, um, you know, the three blind guys holding on to an elephant. You heard that one before? Okay. Well, if not, I'll give it to you next week. But we, we're coming to, we're approaching the will of God from a different viewpoint, from a different standpoint. And it might be a maturity difference. It might be that another believer just is too young in the faith to really see the doctrinal issue for what it is. But it doesn't have to be a maturity issue. You could have equally mature believers. And for whatever reason, God the Father allows one believer to see it one way and another believer to see it another way. See, the prophet Agabus and a whole lot of other people were telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And the Apostle Paul says, I have to go to Jerusalem. And it's, uh, it's interesting what happens when believers, they're all believers in those instances, filled with the Spirit, have a different understanding of what God's will is. And we've got to be real careful because sometimes we're quick to see what the will of God is for somebody else. <laughs> you know? It's always easy to tell somebody else what they need to do. As opposed to make it the first person. What do I need to do? How do I see the will of God? And quite, some, quite frankly, sometimes I will see the will of God and others have a hard time seeing that because it relates to me. Or you, relating to you. Now here's Jesus understanding, understanding, on the verge of adulthood, understanding that he's going to be serving his heavenly father. Okay? And that's a perspective that only he can have as the God-man. Quite frankly, Joseph and Mary cannot put themselves in that position to see that viewpoint. We try to put ourselves in the other person's shoes. We try to empathize or sympathize. We try to put ourselves in their position. We try to look at tests from their viewpoint. But there is nobody on earth who can put themselves into the hypostatic union viewpoint of the God-man, Jesus Christ, stepping into his adult ministry. And they, they're going to fall short. They're not going to be able to do it. And we're going to see where Jesus uh, submits to them. Submits to them. A lot of pattern there to learn from. And hopefully we'll uh, make those things clear next week. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. We may not have next week, Father, to come back and resume this study. So we just pray that you would keep us faithful day by day, moment by moment. We ask, Father, that in the scriptures you have communicated, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that we might see the truth of your word. Pray that we would have fertile soil in which to plant the seeds of this truth, that uh, when you desire for it to spring forth and bear fruit, that it would bear forth. And, Father, we, uh, we ask for that hundredfold rather than the thirty or the sixtyfold, Father. And that's not because we're selfish, but because Christ deserves it. We want to glorify our Savior, and he's worthy of as much fruit as, as we can bear, as much fruit as you can bear through us. So, Father, we're asking for humility. We're asking to keep our soil clear, to let this fruit uh, spring forth. And we're asking for a hundredfold. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.